Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Happy New Year, Ran Army. We got a lot of big things in store for 2022, and we're kicking off the year with an in-depth retrospective for one of the 1980s most bizarre offerings, Motel Hell. We're also happy to announce that the singer of the Motel Hell theme song, Craig Nance, will be stopping by the Black Lodge to talk about how he got involved with the movie and will be performing a special version of the theme song for you out there in the Rant Army. So rev up your chainsaws and crack open a case of Farmer Vincent's fritters because tonight is can't miss. But first... Here's some messages from our sponsors. Come out now to Mask by Lance. Premium Friday the 13th custom made hockey mask. Down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mask by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Hey, assholes! It's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast. Here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your children. Sell your blood. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Want a t-shirt? Want a sticker or a mug to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, guess what? Go to Rant Army Surplus. The link is in the description. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! Happy New Year, Rant Army, and as we ring in 2022, I can think of no better way to celebrate than with an in-depth retrospective of the batshit crazy 1980 southern satirical slasher known as Motel Hell. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and I'm overjoyed to be tackling one of the 80s strangest horror films, so let's waste no time. Let's get right into it. Motel Hell was released October 24th, 1980, on an estimated budget of $3 million. Opening weekend, it raked in $1,924,700. $176 and its total worldwide gross raked in $6,342,668. Now, if you adjust that gross for inflation in 2022 money, that comes to $21,290,196.60. Uh, by and large, per the budget, this had to have been at least a modest success, and I'm sure over time during the VHS boom, this probably picked up quite a bit of steam. Uh, IMDb ranks it at a 6 out of 10. Fairly solid. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 68%, which 
which is a fresh rating. The audience score, however, 49%, which is rotten. And that's sort of uh, interesting because I, I have to attribute this to the fact that a lot of people don't really understand is Motel Hell intended to be a comedy or is it intended to be a serious slasher? Because it is sort of in this weird middle ground. Uh, however, Google users have it at 85% and Shudder, the, the mecca of all things horror, 5 out of 5. So, fairly uh, well received, but the only review that matters is the Rant Army review. So, in our Facebook group, I gave all of you out there on the Rant Army two options. Motel Hell Good, Motel Hell Bad. And overwhelmingly, you decided that you love Motel Hell. It ranked in at an 82%, just under the Google user's... Uh, ranking, but I think that's fair. I think that's definitely a fair assessment of the film, because this is not perfect, and we'll get into the the murky murkiness of what is good and what's bad about the film as we continue on, but it certainly has its issues. Um, in Fat Tony's Hit List, we have five dead bodies, not the most blood-soaked uh, slasher film, in particularly of the 1980s, but being that this movie does hinge a lot on the comedy and that third act, holy fuck, it is ridiculous. So there's definitely a lot of carnage. It just isn't all equating into uh, deaths. Um, on Stink Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, we have two women who expose their breast. We have a, a fully naked woman uh, doing a little bit of slapstick. And something for the women, by the way, you also do get to see a few seconds of uh, an unangry pickle, if you know what I mean. Um, also, you do get to see Ter uh, Terry, who is played by Nina Axelrod, uh, topless a couple of times. So, it isn't a lost cause. Um, this year was, for film, was a just a banner year. But hot damn, there was a horror explosion in 1980. So let's check out Motel Hell's Stiff Competition. So 1980, we have Altered States, Beyond Evil, The Boogeyman, Cannibal Holocaust, The Changeling, Christmas Evil, City of the Living Dead, Death Ship, Fade to Black, Friday the 13th, He Knows You're Alone, House on the Edge of the Park, Humanoids from the Deep, Dario Argento's Inferno, Maniac, Mother's Day, New Year's Evil, Night of the Demon, Nightmare City, Prom Night, Schizoid, The Shining, Terror Train, Watcher in the Woods, and rounding out our 1980s horror list of our stiff competition is the sci-fi horror film without warning. So, uh, normally we would do a, a top five, um, but just uh, put things in perspective, uh, Motel Hell is not in our top five. It does end up in our top ten. So, let's, uh, let's rank our top ten. Number ten, with an estimated $5 million, we have Watcher in the Woods. Coming in at number nine, we have our film we're talking about tonight, Motel Hell, with $6,460,823.65. Number eight, we have Terror Train, with an estimated $8 million. Number seven, Maniac, $10 million. Six, The Changeling, one of my all-time favorite films, $12 million. Number five, Prom Night, $14,796,000. Uh, seven, uh, nine, $14,796,236. Number four, Fade to Black, $15 million. Altered States, uh, number three, with $19,853,892. Number two, Friday the 13th, $39 million. 
uh, $601 tacked on at the end there. Um, number one, oddly enough, or actually not, not oddly enough at all, not surprising in the least, The Shining with $46,998,772. Now, take these numbers with a grain of salt because a lot of the box office numbers weren't available, but by all available accounts, this is how the chips fell. So... Motel, you know, not a huge success in terms of like mega, mega box office, but in a year that just had this explosion of horror films, it's still in the top 10. Now, with a calendar year that packed, it's amazing that anything could break through at the box office, but Motel Hell benefited from a couple of guys with the determination to make it happen. So let's take a trip back to the late 70s and figure out how we got to Motel Hell. Let's go from page to screen. Now, the progenitors of Motel Hell are the brotherly duo of Stephen Charles Chaffee, Jaffe? Chaffee? Jaffe? I don't know how it's pronounced. And Robert Jaffe. And they seem to have uh, been predestined to end up in the entertainment business because their father, Herb Jaffe, was incredibly successful a movie producer. He did um, Who'll Stop the Rain, The Wind and the Lion, um, Fright Night, Fright Night 2. So highbrow, lowbrow, a little bit of everything. But it was a film adapted from a Dean Koontz novel that would bring the family together. Robert Jaffe had this to say. I was in the drama department at SC, and I got a job reading for Creative Management Associates, which was one of the big talent agencies at the time. I read hundreds of screenplays, and at a certain point, I just realized I knew I could write a script as bad as the ones I was reading. It gave me confidence. I started looking around, and I was drawn to cover art on paperbacks. The cover of Demon Seed had a lurid, semi-nude chick with computer attachments for Dean Kuhn's novel. I convinced my father to option it. He immediately saw it had filmic possibilities. I didn't know how to write an original screenplay, but I could adapt a book. When I finished, we handed it off, and someone submitted it to both MGM and Universal. So Robert writes the script. Stephen would become the associate producer, and their father, Herb, pulls some strings, and uh, MGM and gets it to be you know, produced. In 1990, uh, 1977, we have this film called Demon Seed. Demon Seed is uh, it made a couple million bucks at the box office, but more importantly, it whet the appetite for the Jaffees to produce something more in the horror genre. So with the chief influence being a little film you may have heard of called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Robert had this to say about Motel Hell's direct inspirations. When we saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that really did it for us. We walked out on it. Seeing the girl hung up on a meat hook was just too much for us. Later, we saw it once more and we got to really liking it and understood what Hooper was doing. We realized that he had a sense of humor about it too. Now the script was shopped around from time to time and uh, from place to place. It ended up with Universal and oddly enough, Toby Hooper was attached to direct it. However, disputes over the tone of the film uh, sort of caused internal chaos and Universal dropped out not long afterwards and not long after that, Toby Hooper would leave the project, too. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about Toby when we get to Kevin Connor, who's the director of Motel Hell. Um, 
but losing the studio and the director caused them to sort of regroup with the film, and it eventually got picked up by United Artists. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, so I'll do my best to rifle through the verbal debris. Uh, it seems that from the very beginning, uh, there wasn't a clear tone. Uh, if Motel Hell was intended to be like a comedy or, you know, a, like a dark, uh, you know, it just, it's, it was, it, there was a lot of tonal issues. Ultimately, it ended up being both, uh, both, uh, you know, kind of a, a dirty horror movie and, uh, you know, a comedy. But depending on who you speak with, the film was originally intended to be much darker, going as far to include aspects like bestiality or more comedic with like some Three Stooges, um, kind of esque antics. Robert Jeffy had this to say about the original intentions of Motel Hell. We set out to do a tongue-in-cheek exploitation film, not a camp version, and an over not an overt spoof. We wanted to tiptoe the fine line between an all-out horror film and a comedy. Now, regardless of intention, United Artists marketed Motel Hell as a straightforward horror movie rather than a, a horror comedy. Now, fearing that any of the quirkiness in the trailers or the posters would be like off-put audiences. Um, but they still, they still kind of, they do acknowledge the, the comedy because uh, the tagline is you might just die laughing. It still appears on the promotional materials and the posters. So I, I think everybody was just at awe of how to promote this movie um, but to entirely lay the blame on them not knowing how to market it, well, I mean, they did let the audience know that this was going to be a comedy in the tagline, but maybe they could have done a better job overall. It's a glorious mess, so let's read the synopsis for 1980s Motel Hell and figure out what does this whole mess have to do with. Okay. You really are... What you eat with Farmer Vincent's smoked meat in this creepy horror yarn which packs a punch that goes way beyond mere terror. That's box office. Vincent's popular... Vincent's popular products contain a special ingredient that the psychotic farmer and his sister would literally kill to keep secret. Starring Rory Calhoun, Nancy Parsons, Nina Axelrod, and John Ratzenberger, and directed by Kevin Connor, this darkly funny flick just might be your cup of meat. That comes from the LA Herald Examiner. Now, that synopsis doesn't really, really go too deep into this story, and that's probably good, because the less you know about Motel Hell, I think the more you're going to enjoy it. And a script this bonkers needs an equally bonkers personality to corral the madness behind the camera, and there was only one man for the job. Motel Hell is directed by Kevin Connor. He also directed The Land That Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, The People That Time Forgot, The House Where Evil Dwells, and these days he can be found uh, found directing a fuck ton of Hallmark movies, so good for him for being able to continue his career. Um, so, Elephant in the Room, Kevin Connor was not the first choice to direct, so it begs the question, would Motel Hell have benefited from Toby Hooper? That's a loaded question because it all hinges on whether the movie is a, a horror movie or is it a comedy. If it's a horror movie, it's basically the middle ground between two films he had already directed, that being Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, to a lesser extent, Eaten Alive. Now, if you push it into the comedy direction, 
it's a movie that he would end up making called Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. That in of itself begs the question, did Motel Hell influence Toby Hooper to make Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 more comedic, somewhat of a satirical poking fun at the original? And whether it was intentional or not, there's so many parallels in the film that I have to think that whether it was subconscious or mindful that there absolutely had to have been there's a there's a chainsaw battle uh selling uh, meat uh and to you know human meat to people and and, and finding it comical and just uh, there's so many uh coincidental things that i i tend to believe that when something is too coincidental it's probably not um but in terms of like would it be a better film uh that that's that's up to interpretation i think um, for immediacy yes because it probably would have helped in the marketing to say well the director of texas chainsaw massacre brings you a new uh, you know a new horror film in the vein of texas chainsaw massacre but motel hell has such a weird series of ingredients that if you were to add more or take others away, I think it sort of unbalances the cart. Motel Hell persists today because it's so different than any other slasher film. And I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and in some ways I, I probably even prefer it. But it's it's less original than Motel Hell. So for better or for worse, I, I I do I do think that uh, Kevin Connor I'll probably lose the right choice for the film. Um, Kevin Connor would find himself on the radar uh, of the the Jaffe brothers, um, and he had this to say about uh, you know getting the prospect of working on Motel Hill. In 1980, I came to America, to Hollywood, to change direction in terms of there was more work and there were things in England weren't moving so well. I came to America and after two months, I couldn't get anywhere. Nothing happening and I'd given my tape of films I'd done in England to an agent, but he didn't want to take me on. I went back to his office two or three weeks later and I went to in his office to collect the tape off his desk. He came into the room with a cup of coffee and he said, "Yeah, come in, come here. I'm going to get you a job. He picked up the phone, called another agent, and he said, eh, they're looking for a young horror director. I went up to UA and I met two boys. I dragged uh, them to the first film I'd ever did, which was From Beyond the Grave, and they liked it. Now, some things just work out by happenstance, but Robert Jaffe has continually praised Kevin. Uh, he had this to say about Kevin's ability as a director. Kevin was able to see the subtleties of the humor and the otherworldly qualities, the fairy tale. He just captured it so beautifully. We were so fortunate to have him as our director. However, the mutual respect was not immediately from Kevin's perspective because he wasn't overly thrilled with the script upon first reading it. He had this to say, I took the script back home. Fade in. Motel hell. It's uh, The sign is flashing. Night. Interior. A bedroom. A fat woman in a bed with a dildo and a pig. I threw the script down. I've come to Hollywood. This is it? This is all I can get? The only way I could approach it was to make it a dark comedy. 
play it straight because there were so many good things in there, but there was all this juvenile stuff that didn't really appeal to me and I wouldn't have known what to do with it anyways. So I went to the boys and I gave my opinion on the direction I think it should have gone and they humbly agreed so that we would end up making it dark, tongue-in-cheek, but absolutely play everything straight. Don't mock your material, just go with it. And I don't, I'm not going to lie, the version of the script with the fat lady, the dildo, and the pig, I think was a missed opportunity um, not being produced, but in all sincerity, though, it does seem that no one was on the same page about what kind of movie was being made, which I suppose is an even greater testament to how great the film eventually turns out. Um, for the record, I'm not taking anything away from Kevin Connor, who is very talented in his own right, but he greatly benefited from the theatrical debut of the well-known director of photography, Thomas Del Ruth. Uh, Ruth is best known for uh, Stand By Me, The Running Man, Death Wish 2, uh, The Breakfast Club. He he did uh, like over 100 episodes of The West Wing. So you have a talented director, you have a director of photography knows what he's doing. My point being is that film is a collaborative effort and everything was firing on all cylinders. And now not to overshadow the talents of the camera and everybody behind it, uh, but the villain of Motel Hell to me that he is the definition of memorable. We have Rory Calhoun as Farmer Vincent. Now, well-known cowboy actor appearing in everything from Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, but he also had uh, successful roles in Night of the Lepus, uh, How to Marry a Millionaire, with, get this, Marilyn Monroe, Betty Grable, and Lauren Bacall, a.k.a. every beautiful Hollywood actress at the time in one movie. Uh, more contemporarily, he was in Pure Country. He was in Angel and its uh, sequel, Avenging Angel. Hell Comes to Frogtown with Roddy motherfucking Piper. And his final role was Oil's Well That Ends Well. It's an episode of Tales from the Crypt from 1993. Um, Rory Calhoun as Farmer Vincent, in my opinion, is probably the most iconic yet less known villain in horror history, Motel Hell has come into prominence over the past 40 years, but its first taste of infamy, in particular, in particularly as it relates to Rory Calhoun, was the cover of Fangoria Number no. 9. This uh, came out in November of 1980. The infamy was so instant, the, the, the fact that um, they, they took issue 9 off of the stands. It got recalled because there were all these complaints from church groups and parent groups. That's when you know something works. When when uh, there is public outrage. But this, this image, 40 years later, of Farmer Vincent adorning the pig's head and he's toting the chainsaw, that cover, it's the definition of iconic. And it's also... One of the most valuable uh, issues of Fangoria, because it got recalled, so there's less of them out there floating around. Now, I went I went uh, searching around, because um, I, I have a fairly sizable Fangoria collection. I don't have uh, number nine. Um, number two is actually the the earliest issue that I have, but I, I don't have a lot of the uh, the first, first ten. And... Um, 
I actually managed to find an issue for sixty dollars, and uh, and boy, 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 I am uh, I'm it is uh, it is heavy on my mind right now. So by the time uh, I finish recording here, I very well may be going to put that in my cart on eBay. Um, Rory wasn't the first choice to play the cannibal farmer. Uh, legendary character actor Harry Dean Stanton was the first choice, but he declined. Now. Harry declining to take the role isn't entirely surprising when you take everything into consideration, but it really makes me wonder, did he read the script? And if he did, which version of the script did he read? I'm not saying it would have made any difference in him saying no to this, but, I mean, he he did, he has appeared in some sort of offbeat things. He's in uh, Repo Man, but uh, this this movie probably... Uh, not something he'd been interested in. So I, I have to think that, like, had he been in it, the, tonally, like, it would be a completely different movie. Um, and it had been a little more on the horror end. I could definitely see him playing The Menace, but I, I don't know. Uh, nobody could do it better than Rory. Um, Paul Linke, who plays Bruce, certainly agrees that Rory was the right choice, despite him being somewhat of a controversial pick at the time. Uh, Paul had this to say about Rory. Rory Calhoun uh, had the opportunity to work with him, and he was a breath, of, a breath of fresh air. It was interesting because he had been falsely accused of having cancer, which had really hurt his career. So he was really happy to have this job, and of course he carries the film. He played the comedy tongue-in-cheek so right on, it was a lesson to watch how he did it. Now, my understanding is that because Rory was believed to have had cancer, that he could not be insured uh, because of Screen Actor Guild, actor guild act, screen actor guild rules and uh, insurance and stuff. Um, so he was essentially unhireable. And the involved parties have been kind of tight-lipped on how this all was avoided with them. Uh, but this essentially reopened the door for the second half of Rory Calhoun's career. And he, you know, worked, you know, another 15 years until, you know, he uh, passed away. Uh, by and large, the, the character of Farmer Vincent has been very well-received with horror fans, uh, being incredibly likened uh but he's, he's so he's just so likable, but he also has this underlying menace that like sort of shines from behind his eyes. The major complaint that I've seen online, and take that for a grain of salt, is that Motel Hell is incredibly vague about his and Ida's motivation to murder beyond the superficial reasons of you know need he needs to kill for to make his fritters or whatever. The closest explanation that we get in the movie is during the scene where Vincent, Ida, Terry, and Bruce are having the picnic and the revelation of Bruce killing and feeding a dog to his grandmother comes out. This moment it's meant to have it is definitely meant to have happened, but it's played for laughs, but it does leave you with more questions than answers. So the question is like, should we know more about his and Ida's backstory? As, as a kid seeing this uh, early on in my life, uh, the answer would be yes, because I, I wanted to know as an adult, I don't. And I, I, I think that just comes down, boils down to entirely perspective and, and realizing that sometimes the fun of things is like the more you explain them, the less fun it becomes. And this movie is is shooting for that sort of 
fairy tale quality and in fairy tales sometimes people are just fucked up and they do fucked up things so to to give him some sob story i think would kind of rob the movie of some of its magic uh one of one thing everybody is in agreement about when it comes to farmer vincent is his chainsaw battle with bruce we're going to talk about this thing throughout the entire course of of the podcast so this take this as sort of uh part one of my love letter to it um, I will go on record and state, without a shred of hyperbole, that this is the greatest scene ever laid to celluloid. And I, I do not say that with a hint of sarcasm. I mean this. The crazy thing about this scene is that it wasn't even meant to be in the movie originally. It was just an idea they came up with on set late in production. Uh, director Kevin Connor had this to say about the Chainsaw Duel. The most challenging thing was probably the dueling chainsaws, the idea for which came up at the last moment. Now, reportedly, this chainsaw duel took five 12-hour days all together to film. Wow. It really gives you an appreciation for how how hard it is to to be to be a competent film and, and not get the boom mics and everything in there. But this... This is the sticking point of really, can you call Motel Hell a great movie or a movie that has a great scene? Um, if you take out this scene, does Motel Hell persist as a cult classic? And I'm going to have to say no. And that that hurts because this movie has a lot of things about it that are absolutely memorable and terrific. But without this scene, I don't think people remembering it in such a loving way, I I just don't see it happening. Uh, Farmer Vincent is is almost like Two-Face. Or the Green Goblin, he's he's this he's this nice guy, but then he has this this horrible horrible edge to him, and you don't you don't throughout the movie you don't want to put him in the perspective of being the bad guy until he puts that fucking hog head on, and at that point you're like, all right, he's the bad guy now, and it's like with Harvey Dent, you know, like. It is until, isn't until he like flips the the coin and it lands on the scratch side. Like, okay, now he has to do something bad. Or the Green Goblin, you know, he's he has these moments of lucidity, but once he becomes, he shifts from Norman to to Gobby, he's he's bad. So it's the flick of the switch moment where they've built this guy up is so likable, but all of a sudden, well, now now he's the villain. But in the same tone, you, oh my god, he's so fucking visually interesting. And how has there not been a Farmer Vincent action figure? I'm assuming it probably comes down to um, likeness rights of Rory Calhoun. But even if they just made one of the hog head and, you know, and didn't use his face, like, I, I would, day one would buy that figure. NECA, where are you fucking at? But I, I just I have to reiterate the point. With without this scene, 
I think the movie would have came and went, and here we are, forty years later. I wouldn't be wouldn't be talking about how much I love this you know ridiculous movie about a man who grinds up people and sells it to eat be eaten by other people. Just don't think that would be happening. Now, Motel Hell boasts not one but Two memorable villains standing in at the uh, side of Farmer Vincent. We have his psycho sister. We have Nancy Parsons as Ida Smith. Uh, she She's had a fairly successful career. She was in Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin. Uh, she was Miss Kruger in uh, Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry sequel, Sudden Impact. Still Magnolias. She was also in Loose Cannon with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. Uh, she was in Ladybugs with Ronnie Dangerfield, who was in Caddyshack with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. She was also in the Motley Crue music video for Smoking in the Boys' Room. Uh, Motley Crue, man, uh, they at that time, they, they also had, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. I'm going to feel fucking terrible for not being able to remember it. But uh, Pluto from uh, The Hills Have Eyes, he was, he was constantly in, in their music video. So uh, not a big... Big Motley Crue fan, but uh, kudos to them for for having a good eye for talent. Um, however, Nancy Parsons is best remembered as Ball Bricker in Porky's One, Two, and Revenge. So there are a lot of sex comedy aspects to Motel Hell, and I have to think that this is the reason why she was hired. The most infamous scene of a dude getting his his dick yanked on is at her hands. I mean that metaphorically and physically. And so she's playing a much different character. But I have to imagine that because of some of the sophomoric elements of this movie, that they're like, "Well, my God, we have to have Ball Bricker from fucking Porky's." Um, when talking about Nancy Parson as Ida, it's impossible not to mention Farmer Vincent in the same sentence. Um, what arc she has it entirely revolves around her relationship with her brother Vincent. Her character is written somewhat asexually, but there's there's a bond beyond just blood with her and Vincent or or is there um maybe i'm just making something out of nothing but there are moments where i feel like the jealousy he has towards terry goes deeper than just simply protecting the family secret of the meat so my question is and i, I wish i had uh, the jaffies here to to answer this whether they would answer it uh, honestly or not, I don't know. But was there a version of the script, maybe the darker version, where the intent was that maybe there was some incest going on? And I might just be 100% crazy. Or maybe the script just doesn't do a good job of explaining the dynamic but I just I feel like that there's there's moments where the the relationship it it just doesn't add up to 
protect the protecting of the business it that seems more personal than that and i don't know why that would be necessarily um there's an argument that it's just her protecting the family business and you can certainly make that but the the real the first real malevolence that we get from ida is when she's confronting terry about being in the slaughterhouse but rather than killing her right there she makes this whole big attempt to make it look like she's uh, accidentally drowns. They go out on the lake, and uh, they're inner tubing, and she pops the inner tube, and she's going to drown Terry. So, why make it look like an accident if not to prevent Terry and Vincent from getting closer as in a relationship? So, that's what leads me back to the whole perhaps, if there's not incest, is she? does she love her brother because if it truly was about protecting the business, she could have killed her in the slaughterhouse, ground her up, and uh, and if she worried about Vincent getting mad about her, I mean, she could have disposed of her body before she even knew about it. I may be thinking about this more than they did when they wrote the script, but that's just the way it comes across. At least it does to me. The, the motivation ultimately doesn't matter uh, what does matter is that Nancy Parsons was perfectly cast, especially with the version of the movie that plays, you know, the horror and the comedy a little more in the middle. She really knew when to play the comedy and when to turn up the menace. And her, she's rewarded with a Best Supporting Actress nomination at the 1981 Saturn Awards. Now, she lost out to Eve Brent uh, from Fade to Black, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, they probably made the wrong call. There are there is a lot of love for Ida online. Um, she's kind of become somewhat of a, a feminist horror icon. Now, I know there's a lot of uh, female horror icons, but a lot of them are are final girls. And uh, Carrie, I don't really throw her into like the villain mix. She's... Uh, an anti-hero, I guess at at um, at best or worst, however you want to to lay it out. But um, there's there's not really a whole lot of horror villains in the slasher genre. So uh, by almost by just the virtue of existing, she's going to get attention. But there there's a lot of women out there that really like that the way that Ida was written um, because she's not her character. She's female, but there's nothing specifically female about her character. They wrote her character sort of in a gender neutral sense where a man could have played it, but they went with the best actress for the role or the actor, actress, however you want to delineate it. And Nancy Parsons shines in this role. So uh, I think it's absolutely deserved. Um, it's just a shame that like she's second fiddle to, you know, the infinitely more memorable character of Farmer Vincent because he wears a fucking hog on his head and has a chainsaw. And Nancy doesn't really get that moment. And and, and we'll talk about her demise when we get to our victim section. But you got to think about it in in these terms, like. Usually the the villains get sort of they either they either get to 
have a big moment where they kill a bunch of people or they get killed themselves in a really spectacular way. And I don't think that she really gets to do either. Um, she does she does lend a lot of uh, comic value to the film. Uh, the scene where they're having the picnic, uh, just her adulation to to tell the story about um about uh, uh Vincent uh, feeding the the dog to the grandmother and I love it when he hits her because it looks it looks real. It looks like he like fucking genuinely punches her and the look on her face is genuine. So maybe he did actually punch her. Uh, all the same, it's just the little things and uh, I, Nancy Parsons, uh, from Ball Bricker to Ida Smith, uh, you you have left your indelible mark on film. Now the family dynamic of Motel Hell it grows more complex with the introduction of our quote unquote protagonist. We have Paul Linke as Sheriff Bruce Smith, uh, long career Big Bad Mama, Parenthood with Rick Moranis, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. He was in K-Pax, but he's best known for his 116-episode run as Arthur Grossman on Chips. So his his two big roles, he's basically playing pretty much, at least in visual terms, the same character. Now, Paul had a leg up on Motel Hell uh, from the get-go because he was friends with Robert Jaffe. He had this to say about getting the role of Bruce. I think originally the part was written for me by Bruce, my friend Bruce Jaffe, who I went to college with. We were both Jets in West Side Story in the production at USC in 69. And later on, we're evolving as human beings. I was working on my acting and he was writing. He had this idea for me and he wrote this part for me. Normally, when someone writes a part for you, you never get it. That just doesn't work out. But I got to thank his father, Herb Jaffe, who's no longer with us because he was a big-time movie producer. He bought it. He said, I see Paul in it. They gave me the job, and it was fantastic. So he gets the role. He makes it his own. But the writing, huh? It's 2022, and a lot has changed since 1980 when Motel Hell came out. One of the most glaring differences is the boys being boys trope. Now, Animal House, Porky's, films like that, they there were obvious inspirations for some of the comedic elements in Motel Hell, and there's nothing wrong with that. I absolutely love those movies. So in of itself, those things are fine. However, some of the things that are intended to be cute about Paul or Paul's character Bruce, they they uh, unfortunately come across as uh, how can I how can I put this um, a rapey. <laughs> um, so let's let's break it all down. Uh, Bruce invites Terry to the drive-in. Uh, so here comes red flag number one. He doesn't take her to the drive-in. He takes her to a hill adjacent to the drive-in where couples go to have sex. So after some sex comedy shenanigans involving, you know, police are and naked women, uh, minor car crashes, uh, Bruce clears the area and he and Terry can be alone. He gives Terry a pair of binoculars and he pipes in the sound from the movie from his CB. So red flag number two, he's too cheap to buy her a ticket, but this all pales in comparison to red flag number three. He flat out forces himself on her and he only stops because Farmer Vincent is terrorizing a woman and she's able to call for help because she has a CB radio in her car. Later on, when he finds out that Terry 
is going to marry Vincent, he then decides to do his job of police work. At this point, there nothing has been done. We we have one known dead body and nothing. Nothing. <laughs> he didn't do anything. He asked a question and he just eh, whatever. We'll talk about that when we get to our um our victims section. Um this is a narrative of necessity to push the plot forward, but it really makes his character look incredibly petty because he only cares about doing his job because he's getting cock-blocked. I mean, all jokes aside, Paul's great in the movie, and as much as I've hyped the like the chainsaw battle, I've got to admit... He, he is a big part of that. Um, Paul had this to say about the scene. One of my favorite things I've ever done on film was the chainsaw fight. And I only mention this because at the point in time, director of photographies, they love smoke. They put smoke in everything. But in those days, they used an oil-based smoke. So it really was not good. It was like smoking 10 packs a day. I'd come home with black stuff coming out of my body and out of my pores. Well... Before we move on, um, I have a couple more things I have to add about the chainsaw battle. The the first thing about oil-based smoke. Now, I work in a year-round haunted house, and we used oil-based fog in parts of our house, you know, just constantly. And uh, one aspect that um, if you ingest smoke that Paul doesn't mention, and he's lucky that he didn't have this side effect, but I know firsthand this is 100% true, is if you breathe in fog or smoke that's oil-based long enough, it will make you shit your guts out. Um, the oil gets into your colon, and it just lubes that fucker. So, I mean, like, you you have to, like, drink water. Otherwise, you will literally shit yourself to death. That is not hyperbole. You will fucking die. Um, now, we use diluted, but... Still, like, if you're in that room long enough, you know, longer than, like, you know, a shift, like, it could really fuck you up. Secondly, I can tell you, the first time I ever saw Motel Hell, down to the exact date, it was Saturday, April 10th, 1992. I remember this because this was the first time I had ever saw Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs. But specifically, the reason I remember this is because the chainsaw scene for some reason, they're showing this movie and it freezes right where Farmer Vincent is revealed wearing the pig's head. I cannot tell you how impactful this moment has been on my life. So not only have I seen Monster Vision and Joe Bob Briggs for the first time, I'm seeing Motel Hell for the first time. I'm in stunned silence because I'm so into this movie, and now a fucking guy wearing a hogshead and a chainsaw has shown up, and the film freezes. I sit there for I don't know how long, and it just doesn't. It just doesn't change, and eventually it just goes to black. But this started a lifelong love for Joe Bob Briggs, who I'm very glad to say... I will be doing a con with this coming May, Franken Con. He and Darcy are going to be there. But um, 
when I meet him, this is this is what I'm going to talk to him about. And I'm going to ask him if this was, was this just a Morristown, Tennessee problem? Or was this a, a problem that happened all across TNT? I see to this day, I have no idea. I'm assuming it was just a Morristown problem, but it left such an indelible mark on me. And as much as I want to shit on the Paul Linky Bruce character, he does sort of get to become the hero at this point. Now, when I finally saw Motel Hell completely uninterrupted by, by freezing, he gets the hero's moment where he, he literally slides in on a chain. It's like something out of a, an Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie or Tarzan. So they somewhat re- redeem him and he saves Terry, but he's still, he's still kind of a creep. Um, but Paul Linke, nothing but respect. Very, very, very cool guy. Great actor. Now, every slasher movie needs its final girl, and in my opinion, Motel has one of the most unique in the history of splatter cinema. We have Nina Axelrod as Terry. Now, you may remember her from such movies as Roller Boogie with Linda Blair. She was in Brainstorm with Christopher Walken, who was in The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro, who was in Mad Dog and Glory with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters, You Just Got Busted. And she was also in one of my personal favorites, Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. Now, of all the characters in Motel Hell, for better or worse, Terry may be the most interesting and at the same time the most baffling. Up until this point, I've been fairly positive about the strange concoction that is Motel Hell. But the character of Terry is at best inconsistently written and at worst narratively aimless. So without jumping the gun into our victim section, uh, Terry's arc revolves around the perceived tragedy of the loss of her lover, Bo or Boris. She emotionally breaks down after this revelation and then is immediately over it to the point where she's willing to live with Vincent Ida, people that she has just met. Now, th- there's never conversations about like you know where where are you from go home like it's just it just done done you live here now <laughs> you're a part of the family it's so matter of fact now th- this is uh, a means to an end for her hanging around um she's there to cause drama between Ida Bruce and Vincent which is fine on paper but in practice it, it there just isn't a lot to her character beyond one element that I'm not sure was intentional or not. And I can't believe I'm even having to ask this. But does the character of Terry have a daddy kink? Let's break it down. When we first meet Terry, she's in a relationship with an older man. That man being the biker Boris. Uh, we don't have an in-depth look into the re- uh, relationship, but, uh, but it's inferred that she's there by choice. Um, her next perspective lover is Bruce, and she handily rejects him, and that's aside from the, you know, all the rapey stuff, but even though he's what you would consider more age-appropriate, um, she has her sights set on the much 
older farmer Vincent. Now, there's a sweetness between her and Vincent, and it's absolutely played kind of like a like a daughter, uh, father, or a grandfather, granddaughter relationship. But after Terry's near drowning incident, there is a hard left turn in the story, and where Terry lets Vincent know that she wants his him quote unquote fritters inside of her. Um, the, this moment sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, he, she like takes her top off and like you know tries to get him to you know to be with her. Um, Vincent blocks her advances because you know premarital sex would not be moral. Um, so the obvious escalation of events uh, is that they should be married. So let's talk really quickly about this. One of the great things about uh, Farmer Vincent is that he has this like Judeo-Christian value system, yet he's still fucking murdering people. I, I love it when there's like that twist of the the morality where uh, they, they still have like a code that they won't break. And I, I just, I think that's interesting that like, Oh, can't have sex with that be immoral. Now I'll grind this fucking person up and let you eat them. But that, but I can't, can't have sex with you prematurely. Um, I, there's way there's a way to make this all work, but I feel like the aspect of the movie that this all just happens rather than developing, if that makes sense. But in the grand scheme of Motel Hell, uh, Terry's bizarre behavior, like I guess it isn't any more bizarre than anything else in the film. It just films, it just feels like that maybe the script could have used a couple of more rewrites and, I actually applaud them because we'll get into it very shortly, but the the third act of this film is is fucking crazy. But they really do attempt to make their characters three-dimensional. It's just little things like this. Well, it's not necessarily a little thing, but I, I think there's just a missed opportunity here. Um, that I guess Bruce really, in a lot of ways, is the star of the movie. But it, it just, from my perspective, makes a lot more sense that Nina is your, your human, uh, first, you know, your your surrogate perspective for the film, and you want her to be the one you're experiencing these things through, and uh, she's she's likable, but she's misguided. So I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Motel Hell, um, it features this like strange love story in front of the camera, but what you may not know is that there was a legit love story going on behind the camera. Paul Linke had this to say, Nina Axelrod is an interesting story. She and Robert Jaffe met at my first son's birth because my late wife Francesca and I had three children and all of them born at home. The first one was Jasper and she was uh, her attendant and Robert was my attendant. They literally fell at love, fell in love at my child's birth. Now, Nina Axelrod and Robert Jaffe have been married since 1981. They have a son named, I'm going to butcher this, Talesian. And he's a very well-known voice actor. He's uh, got a very popular YouTube series called Critical Role. My friends are absolutely into this. Um, shout out to Fat Fuck Scott. He loves Critical Role. It's a Dungeon & Dragons series on YouTube. They It's just them playing, and it's a continuing story. 
fun stuff. Um, Nina herself comes from a Hollywood stock, you know, being, she was the daughter of legendary screenwriter, George Axelrod, who wrote the Manchurian candidate uh, breakfast at uh, Tiffany's and the seven year itch. So this whole family is just a a big Hollywood affair between the Jeffies and the Axelrods. They kind of combine to, you know, it's like the, the megazord of, of Hollywood elites, um, Nina has gone on to be a fairly successful casting agent in uh, later years. Uh, she cast uh, such films as Fright Night 2, Firestarter, Conan the Destroyer, Red Sonja, Critters 3, and 4. Critters 3 is uh, noteworthy because she cast a young Leonardo DiCaprio in his first film role. So, in a weird way, uh, Nina Axelrod is uh, the person who gave us you know, one of you know, the screen's most popular and talented actors. So thanks a lot, Nina. Now, no doubt Terry was a beauty, but uh, we have to turn our attention to something that's a little more on the ugly side. We have the carnage of Farmer Vincent and his psycho sister, Ida. So let's break down our victims. Okay, with there only being five kills, you think this would be easy to breeze through. However, this is going to have to require a lot of prefacing for anything uh, to properly add up. So we're going to go through the movie somewhat plot point by plot point. So first up, we have a motorcycle accident in full view of our antagonist. We don't know that yet, but, you know, we'll find out. Farmer Vincent. You'll later find out that the wreck was caused by Vincent shooting the tires out because uh, Bruce eventually does some police work. Uh, Vincent backs his uh, truck up to the wreckage, uh, pulls the male victim, who's Boris, or Bo, uh, into the truck bed and female in the cab. Now, the the woman is our protagonist, Terry, who is nursed back to health, but Bo will not be so lucky. When pressed at to what happened to Boris, Farmer Vincent claims to have buried him in the cemetery. This is another one of those things in the script that is it's so narratively convenient that it's frustrating. I'm from the South. I live in Tennessee, and I'm not saying that there isn't some state... Uh, or county rule that per- allows you to potentially bury someone uh, un- unauthorized, but I just, I don't, I'm not entirely certain that that's a real thing. But being from the South, I do realize that there, there's a lot of gray area sometimes in the law, so maybe, 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 in like Cock County, <laughs> where it's a lawless wasteland of meth heads. Maybe shit like that happens, but I've never heard of anything like this. So I, I, I feel like that this is just, just to explain things away. And like I talked about earlier with Terry just getting over this so easily, it's like, why even, why even have him to begin with? Couldn't have just been her. And maybe he, he's so, taken by how innocent she is that rather than doing what he does to other people, we'll talk about in just a moment that he decides to nurse her back to health. I don't know. Something could have been done differently here. Now, a little bit of trivia. Boris is played by Everett Creech. Everett is primarily known as a stuntman going all the way back to the 1940s. His resume includes the Green Berets, Tora Tora Tora, Big Jake, Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Forever uh, Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, The Towering Inferno, Near Dark, and Suburban Commando. What a, 
What a cast of strange films. Now, in the meantime, Bob, who's sort of like a governmental animal welfare inspector, he's suspicious of Farmer Vincent and uh, discovers his secret garden. This is our first view into the seedy underbelly. Uh, Bob hops the fence and starts to investigate when he hears gurgling come from under a burlap sack. He kneels down and discovers Bo has had his vocal cord slit and has been buried up to his neck. Bob is stunned by what he saw and is knocked unconscious by Farver Vincent with a shovel. Now, prior to him being bopped on the head with that shovel, Bob had paid Farmer Vincent an impromptu visit. Um which is sort of beside the point. However, I noticed something in when rewatching this scene pertaining to the audio that I'd never noticed before. Uh, shout out to Screen Factory and their wonderful 1080p, you know, Blu-ray copy of this. But uh, my, the DVD copy I had years ago, which was like a, a weird double feature. It was like that. And I want to say the movie deranged maybe, but the audio quality was fucking terrible, but it's really faint. But I swear to you, you can hear a, and I, is it there? If so, is it just an accident of like unrelated sounds coming together? And because that sound from Friday the 13th has become so iconic that there's a thing called matrixing where you're putting unrelated things together to make sense out of it. Or (laughs) did they just rip off Friday the 13th? I don't have an answer to this. Um, and I don't know, I've never heard anybody else bring this up, but um, I wish Fat Tony was here because I, I was going to uh, press him about this uh, had he been able to to do this episode. But I'm telling you, it's there. And if I, if I knew anything about how to isolate the audio, I think that we could maybe explore this a little deeper. But all I can say is watch that scene where he goes and visits and like he falls in the the mud the mud hole and there's a part where like he's behind the car I'm telling you listen you can hear it uh, a little bit of trivia bob is played by e hampton beagle just so happens he was in the steven spielberg movie you may have seen it uh, 1941 who's in that movie oh yeah dan Aykroyd, who was in ghostbusters you just got busted <laughs> uh, next up we have a van filled with the band Van with the band. That's hard to say. Ivan and the Terribles. They speed down the road at night, but Farmer Vincent has booby-trapped the road with a few uh, bear traps. They hit the traps. They go flying off the road. The van flips. Vincent uh, has loaded all four of the members up into the band in the bed of his truck. And when Ida and he, you know, they take him to the secret garden. So here's our trivia. Ivan of Ivan and the Terribles is played by Michael Melvin. Michael appears in the movie Murder. Uh, Mur- Murder in the First, which is uh, Kevin the Bacon, uh, Kevin the Bacon, which is a Kevin Bacon movie, who was in Wild Things with Bill Murray. You just got busted again. Uh, the drummer for Ivan and the Terribles is uh, none other than John Ratzenberger, who you best know as Cliff from Cheers. Uh, two, uh, 270 episodes. Uh, John Ratzenberger, uh, very, very well known. Uh, he's the voice of the, the little uh, the pig in Toy Story. 
Ham, maybe that's his name, Mr. Ham, Hamlet, I don't know, something like that. But, I mean, everybody knows John Ratzenberger. Uh, the guitarist for Ivan the Terribles was played by Mark Silver. Uh, Mark appeared in a couple of episodes of Designing Women. You know who was in Designing Women? Annie Potts. Annie Potts was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. And, finally, the female member of Ivan and the Terribles was played by Victoria Hartman. Her only other credit is the 1982 version of Annie. Um, Farmer Vincent drills holes into the ground and tells Ida to plant them. Uh, she she buries the people up to their necks. Um, she takes a scalpel, um, or actually, uh, Farmer Vincent takes a, a, a scalpel, and he slashes their vocal cords. Now, the, the next night, they return to feed the humans by pouring corn into a, fu- a funnel that's attached to a snorkel. This is one of the elements that really really makes this movie special as opposed to just people doing gross things. And it goes back to that whole weird morality thing. It's because they're, they're doing these horrible things to people, but they're still somewhat treating them humanely, or at least they are in their own mind. And I, I, the the visual of it being a snorkel, like the, the the ingenuity, you know, like there's a funnel and a snorkel, and they're feeding them corn, and and it's just the the little the the banter and the bickering back and forth, and like uh, it's just it it has a an Aussie and Harriet of nineteen fifties g golly kind of quality to it. I I absolutely love how ridiculous this is. So next up. We have a couple of women named Debbie and Susie driving in a car, and they nearly wreck when they come across a whole bunch of, like, their signs, but they're they're made to look like uh, cows, and they're, like, blocking the road. Susie takes a gun, she gets out of the car, she moves to the cows, and Farmer Vincent pops up, knocks her out with uh, some kind of gas. Uh, while wearing a gas mask, uh, Vincent runs towards Debbie, but she's able to get out of the car. Farmer Vincent pursues, and uh, or he gets a, she gets away in the car. Uh, Farmer Vincent pursues, and he rams her uh, car with his truck um, and forces her into the water. Now, both uh, Debbie and Susie are buried, and they have their vocal cords slit. But this whole... <laughs> scenario is is just so odd that like this goes back to the whole Paul Linky Bruce character if this stuff is happening so regularly to where they have a successful business how I know being close to them will give you some probably like blinders but I just I wish there was more of you know maybe like oh him saying something like oh yeah we we got you know, a couple more missing persons and just give, give me a little more idea of, uh, of the scope of this operation rather than just being dumbfounded. Like what more people disappeared (laughs) and it being explained away so easily. Uh, a little bit of trivia. Uh, Susie was played by Roseanne, uh, Caton. Uh, She's best known as the September, 1978 playboy, uh, Playboy Centerfold, and she's also the hooker in Bachelor Party. Uh, Debbie was played by Monique St. Pierre, who was the 1979 Playboy Playmate of the Year. This is interesting in of itself because why get two Playboy Playmates and then neither one of them are naked? 
slasher films are built upon two principles. Blood and breast. And I guess you could throw the third one in there, beast. <coughs> Excuse me. But why, why get these two Playboy playmates and then not utilize them for what they're known for? It just, I, it, I just don't understand the name, the name value. I guess uh, they're they're both attractive women, and I very much would have liked to have seen them naked, and I'm sure a, a lot of people in 1980 would have as well. But I don't know. It just seems like a missed opportunity um, at best. And so later on, we have a couple of swingers who show up at the motel. Looking to fuck, so they've they've incorrectly uh, decided or come to the conclusion that Motel Hello is for swingers, and I'm not entirely sure if they if the material that they have with them is something that they've printed up to entrap these sinful people so they can turn them into into meat, or if they're uh, mistaken about where they're supposed to be. I'm not entirely sure. All the same, whips, body oil, see-through plastic skirts, this movie just changed directions. As a, the couple are preparing to fuck, they, there's got to be some weird commentary about you know the, the morality of all this, because they have their television on, and we have Wolfman Jack is on the TV, and he's playing a televangelist. And so there's just like this layer of weird on top of weird. The juxtaposition of it all is just wonderfully macabre and strange. Uh, Vincent and Ida show up. They've got ropes, and they get the, they trick the perverts, basically in allowing them to be tied up because they think it's going to be hot. Bondage. And they use this uh, like tank of gas that they use to, uh, to knock out uh, Roseanne Caton's character earlier, and off screen they're buried in the secret garden. So the, these swingers. Now earlier when we were talking about the director and he's saying that they're you know the the fat woman, the pig, and, and the dildo. I, I'm assuming that like maybe uh, either this scene was changed or maybe he was just being uh, reductive or hyperbolic and and this part of the movie but the these characters are so fucking gleeful i i i love i love them so much and i when you really like characters you don't necessarily want them to be killed but it's also a slasher movie and uh, when we finally get into the, the kills uh they're they're very matter of fact and i and not and not everybody meets meets a demise and i i just i i feel like they could have done some comedic things with making uh with killing these characters um whether that was choking one of them with with a dildo while one of them gets fucked by a pig i don't fucking know i don't know but there there was there was potential there to take this a step further 
than than what they do with it. Uh, a little bit of trivia: the televangelist is played by Wolfman Jack. Uh, he was a huge pop culture icon and a disc jockey at the time. Uh, reportedly, there was a scene of Wolfman Jack officiating a wedding at a church, and it was shot, but it was cut from the final version of the film. However, um, he does pop up again in the movie to tip off Bruce that Terry and Vincent are going to be wed. So we get him a little cameo on the TV, and we get him in the flesh a little later on. Uh, the Swingers were played by Dick Curtis and Elaine Joyce. Dick made a career out of playing drunks, and how gleeful he is to play uh, this this pervert character. I can kind of see the the mannerisms of a drunk because he's not inebriated, but he's drunk on the the situation. Um, and you may remember Elaine as Eddie's mom in Trick or Treat, and that's the Trick or Treat with uh, you know the Rock guy coming back from the dead with Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne, not Trick or Treat, the uh, Michael Doherty uh, movie with Sam the pumpkin headed kid. Both great movies for different reasons. Um, they're both great. I, I I love those swingers. So here we are. Finally, we have our first three kills. Number one, number two, and number three. Vincent and Ida bring out three spinning hypnosis lights with uh, three of the four members of Ivan and the Terribles. They put them in a trance. Ida places nooses around their necks, and um, the ropes uh, uh, from the nooses are attached to the tractor, and she drives away, snapping each neck in succession. Now, after uh, they, they, they sort of take a moment to pontificate on the karmic nature of what they're doing, um, he uses the tractor to like to pull their bodies like up from the holes um, to prepare them for, to become Farmer Vincent's fritters. Um, the, the kill in of itself is, is nothing special. It's all the surrounding gaga that sort of makes this great. I, I'm going to give it a seven. You can't argue that this is unique. Uh, Motel Hell is not in a rush to get to the gory details. In of itself, this kill is just not nothing, anything special. But it's the links that Ida and Vincent go to to quote unquote be humane the, to their animals that's, that's satisfying to me. You may be feeling differently. Um, I don't know. Uh, by the way, our first three kills take place all at the same time. And it's an hour and 14 minutes into the movie. For a slasher movie, that's an eternity. So, that's the next point of debate. Is this too long to wait for a kill in a, in a horror film? Or, more specifically, a slasher film? Um, in general, I'll say yes. Uh, I feel like the formula, generally, in those classic slasher movies is that you have one up front to sort of set your... Uh, the dread, and then you have a lot of stalking in that first half an hour to to really establish your characters. Then uh, you have a half an hour of certain characters, you know, being picked off one by one, and then you have that last half an hour of you know full carnage mayhem, like in front of the camera. Um, because Motel Hell is its own. Special recipe of of film. I I kind of hated this aspect as a kid because I'm you know I was very much in tune with Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street and um, 
My Bloody Valentine, and the, these type of like slasher movies where it's uh, they don't string you along very long. You know, they they may take their time, but like once it gets going, like there's there's going to be a kill every you know every ten minutes, at, you know at the at the least. Or, or some some moment to to be substituted in that, you know, if not uh, not a someone getting stabbed, somebody being stabbed between their legs, if you know what I'm saying, sex scene, and this movie it, it's just oddly constructed, but as an adult, I really appreciate the fact that it it really it's like a it's like a staircase. It just it slowly escalates to this this final half an hour, which is as close to perfect as as really any slasher movie could ever be. Because it's just like everything that could happen does. It's the the throw the the, the kitchen sink at it motif. It just every every crazy fucking thing happens in this in this final final act, but. In traditional terms, yeah, it's it's probably too long, and it's going to be a turnoff to certain people. But uh, for my money, i I think it's I think it's great. I really, really in, enjoy that the they make you wait for it, they build it up, and then when you finally see it, um, you know, it's matter of fact to them, but it's a it's a cool moment for us. Bo somehow manages to dig himself out of this hole and uncover the others that Vincent and Ida have buried. This makes no sense because I, I mean, I guess they have been feeding them. So he wouldn't be like weak and a oh, weak, weak, but we, I don't think he would be strong enough either because he, number one, he was in a fucking motorcycle accident. Um, so he, he has to have to be banged up to some degree. Um, but just the, the sheer amount of uh, having the weight of the the soil on him and being and standing because you got to think that that's just impact on your legs and your spine uh, for an immense amount of time. Um, we're not really hard pressed exactly on the time frame of Motel Hell, but it's long enough to where this is a little out of the realm of expectation. But it is what it is. Um, Ida becomes swamped by Bo, Bob, the Swingers, the female member of Ivan and the Terribles, Susie, and Debbie. Bo separates from the pack, and he seeks out Terry. He climbs on top of the slaughterhouse, and he falls through the skyline. They brawl, but Vincent gets the upper hand and throws him into the smoker. So, on a technical level... It, I guess technically your fourth kill right there is Bo, but there seems to be an argument online on whether or not Bo is dead. So I reluctantly didn't include it, but here, if you want to want to say six kills rather than five, that is entirely up to you. Um, this is pretty uh, forgettable. So I, I give it a five. Um, the actual uh, uh, believed number four is uh, Bruce takes a shotgun and blows the lock away from the slaughterhouse in an effort to save Terry. There's just one problem. Farmer Vincent has a chainsaw and a pig's head. Seeing the writing on the wall, Bruce also gets a chainsaw 
and we have a chainsaw battle. God damn. They trade cutting blows back and forth, but Vincent is impaled in the side with his chainsaw. His death is slow, it's somber, and his final words announcing that he'd been a huge hypocrite because he'd been using preservatives all along. Ten out of ten. The greatest scene in film history. As a kid, the preservatives line didn't get me. As an adult, that is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in a movie. I'm not just saying that. I, I rewound that scene twice when I rewatched the movie this past week. It genuinely made me laugh because, number one, I had forgotten about it. But it's just funny because it's like it goes back to the whole morality thing. He's confessing his sins because he he still sees the possibility of, you know, you know whatever, you know, afterlife awaits him. He's got that's his greatest sin is not he's killing people is that he used preservatives. Fucking great. All right. And number five or number six, however you want to you want to. Uh, quantify it. Off screen, Ida has been buried upside down in the secret garden. She discover- She's discovered alive by Bruce and Terry, but it's insinuated that they left her to die. And this is another one of those things of why there is a debate of whether there is five or if there is six kills. Because some people say this is a kill and then it, some people say it's not, and some people say that Bo's death is a kill, and some people say it's not. I I don't know. Split the difference. I I think five because um, we don't really know if Ida's dead. To me, Bo is de- definitively dead. <sighs> but I I don't understand. The internet is a strange place. Um, if I had to give Ida's kill a death, um. I'll give it a five. Uh, after that chainsaw battle, anything is going to pale in comparison. Um, I mentioned this before. Ida Ida does a lot of the dirty work in this movie, and I feel like the one doing the dirty work uh, really should get a more horrific death. And there's a moment where all of the when everybody that was buried in the secret garden attack her they attack her almost like a zombie horde and there's a moment where you think like they're going to rip her apart or they're you know they're going to you know fucking uh <laughs> bite her you know eat her because they're fucking hungry i i don't know i think there's a missed opportunity there although it is a comical moment to see her with her feet up in the air buried upside down um either way Five out of five, or five out of ten. Uh, wrapping out, we do have uh, a, a little bit of uh, additional cast. We'll run through these really quickly. Uh, we have Mr. and Mrs. Owens. Uh, they're the couple at the very beginning of the movie uh, who have those uh, um, twin daughters who get scared in the in the uh, slaughterhouse. Uh, Mr. Owens is played by Gwil, G-W-I-L. Not Gil, Gwil, G-W-I-L. Gwil Richards, you may almost remember Gwil as Mr. Mediger in The Monster Squad. Uh, Tony Gilman as Mrs. Owens. Uh, from 1950 to 1955, Tony appeared in 1,074 episodes of a series called Hawkins Falls. No clue what that shit is. Um, 
Uh, Shalane and Heather Hendrickson are the twins. This is their only acting credit. This is actually a really important part of the movie because it sets the tone for what's going to come. You have those little girls. They go off on their own. They go into the slaughterhouse. They get spooked by all the the pig parts and shit. They run to the car, and we get to see that there is a little bit of a darkness inside of Farmer Vincent. Because even though he's the nice guy and the smiling face, he goes out of his way to fucking scare these little girls right in front of their family. I absolutely love that. It's just so much fun. Oh, man. I don't know about you guys, but after talking about all these Farmer Vincent shenanigans, I sure could use a drink. So, let's drink it in, man! Motel Hell Edition. So, once you've listened to this stellar retrospective, we invite all of you out there in the Rant Army to pop in your VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, or your digital copy of the movie and have a little bit of fun with this Motel Hell drinking game. I want you to take a shot whenever Bruce does something rapey. That in of itself is going to get you smashed drunk. Uh, Take a shot whenever you hear Ida eating. I'm sorry, whenever you see Ida eating. Take a shot whenever someone mentions Farmer Vincent's fritters. You're going to get there. Take a shot whenever there is gurgling. You're smackered. And finally, take a shot whenever the neon Motel Hello sign flickers. Now, for those of you that like to take your drink and just a step beyond, take a double shot during the chainsaw battle. This drinking game will definitely get the job done. For those of you who take your drinking a little more seriously, we also have a Motel Hell-inspired cocktail that'll get your chainsaw revving big time. So these are your ingredients. You're going to need one and a half ounces of maple bacon whiskey. You're going to need a half an ounce of moonshine, legal for lightweights, illegal for legends, (laughs) three ounces of apple cider, and you're going to need some crushed bacon bits. So the directions. You're going to pour the apple cider, the maple bacon whiskey, and the moonshine into a shaker. You're going to add some ice, and you're going to shake it like a Polaroid picture. Strain it into a glass that has been rimmed with those bacon bits. Now, I'm not a cocktail mixologist. I don't have a fucking clue how you get those to stay on the rim, but however you do, you get them to stay on there. Once you have your drink in hand, sit back, sip, and enjoy your Motel Hell-inspired cocktail, but always remember to drink responsibly. But the fun doesn't have to end there. You want to know what goes great with a nice, cold adult beverage? A good old-fashioned country ballad. It's with great pleasure that we were able to track down the music man, Craig Nance, to talk about how he ended up performing Motel Hell's theme. But in an amazing turn of events, he's going to debut a special reworked version of that song tailored to our little podcast. Greg, take it away. Craig Nance here, the singer on the Motel Hell theme song. And thank you so much for reaching out and uh, asking me about the song and how it came about. And uh, in 1980... I was a uh, just a country boy from Oklahoma, just gotten out to Los Angeles and was tooling around town and doing demos and trying to get something going. And a friend of mine knew 
Lance Rubin, who scored the movie, Motel Hell, and they just needed somebody to sing the demo. So they brought me in, I sang it, and I left, and I thought that was the end of it, you know, because they said they were going to find a country star or somebody to record over the demo. A few months later, they told me they liked my version. <laughs> At least that's what they said. And uh, and so my version stayed in. The movie came out. I got to go meet Rory Calhoun, the old country star, and he was really nice. And, uh, and the movie has really kicked off my entire studio vocal work in Los Angeles at the time because I got to go in and do other... Um, soundtrack stuff and i got to do the country version of the coca-cola jingle it got me my screen actors guild card so i owe a lot to motel hell anyway i thought i would rewrite the song a little bit uh just for you i've i know you're doing a retrospective thing and your podcast the rants from the black lodge you're doing some really uh good stuff there so I've had my ears on rants from the Black Lodge And I still can't believe just what I hear Your podcast is like the midnight shadows As it sends its welcome out with fear so rocked by your ranting that I didn't think to realize how when you said you won't request me that it might just lead to my demise you're ranting out my heart and soul babe you're casting on my better side Whoever thought you'd be this way, Brandon The mouthpiece from the southeast rants with pride The mouthpiece from the southeast rants with pride <laughs> Okay, so Brandon A. Lane, thank you very much, and I hope your retrospective is a big success. Take care. I am absolutely blown away by what Craig has done, not only for the podcast, but just me specifically. I've never been the subject of a, of a song before, let alone a reworked version of a theme song to one of the most cult classic films of all time, Motel Hell. I, Craig, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm internally indebted to you. And I, and for that amazing audio, I, I have to give you some sort of restitution. So I want all of you out there in the rant army, please hop over to Twitter. Give him a follow right now at Craig Nance. Now, let me spell that out so there's no confusion. At K-R-E-G-G-N-A-N-C-E. Now, once you've followed him there, hop over to YouTube. He's got a great channel, lots of music stories, good stuff. Craig Nance Music. Craig, you are an amazing guy. You're very talented, and we thank you so much for participating in our Motel Hell retrospective. Now, before we close out this episode, we have another edition of our newest segment we'll be doing from time to time called Rants Recommends. 
And, you know, we'll be doing, uh, recommending things of like pop culture related things, uh, like, uh, music, movies, books, games, you know, things that interest me that I think may also interest you. Uh, this recommends for January, uh, is something that's actually kind of tied more to December, but I think there's enough enjoyment that you'll be able to overlook the, uh, Christmassy overtones and undertones of the piece. It's a French horror uh, movie. It's got a a really, really fucked up sensibility to it. It's suspenseful. It's very creative. It's got a dreamlike quality. It's bizarre. It's engaging. Um, it's currently um, streaming on Shudder. Um, I would recommend that you go into this movie knowing as little as possible, but uh, without attempting to spoil anything, it's about this creepy, possessed, or uh, uh, haunted advent calendar, and with each opening of every day, a new twist unfolds. Very, very good stuff. So if you can... uh, you know, suffer through the subtitles, which I, I know some of you out there don't care for those. I think, I think you will genuinely enjoy that. I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. We'll be back later this month for a uh, episode of Rants After Dark with a commentary for the craptastic John Michael Thor rock and roll nightmare. Good stuff. In the best way possible. Till then, the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast will be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please go give us a sub. Uh, you can find us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. So please follow us. We exactly just uh, passed 1,000 followers on Twitter. Thank you so much. And let's keep that ball rolling. Check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. This is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Until next month, Rant Army, keep marching. There's a friendly motel. We'd like a room for the night. Come on inside, I'll fix you up. Featuring a heated pool and competitive sports. Where Ida and Farmer Vincent tend a garden. Their famous secret garden for very special guests. Drop in. You just might die laughing. Motel Hell rated R.